Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we're going to talk today about human flourishing and evolutionary psychology. And to do that, I have a guest with us, Justin Barrett, who is founder and president of Blueprint 1543 and formerly the director of the Thrive Center and chief project developer for science, theology, and religion initiatives at Fuller Theological Seminary. He is the co-author of Thriving with Stone Age Minds, Evolutionary Psychology, Christian Faith, and the Quest for Human Flourishing. Justin, thanks for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I stumbled across your book, I believe, through the BioLogos organization. It must have been an email that I got from them or I was on their website. And the idea of human flourishing and evolutionary psychology caught my attention, partly because I was introduced to evolutionary psychology about four and a half so years ago through a particular book by a person who's not not a Christian, but I was just sort of interested in the topic because actually a Christian friend of mine actually recommended that. And so this is the first book that I've actually seen, and maybe it doesn't maybe it's the only one that exists that actually explores what evolutionary psychology can contribute to theology and the Christian faith. So I really appreciated reading your book and some of the topics and insights that that we gained from it. So I'd like to give you an opportunity to start off with a little bit of your background, what are you interested in, and then sort of how did this book begin and unfold? Sure, thanks. Well, and thanks for those kind words. Uh, I am an experimental and developmental psychologist, uh, or I sometimes call myself a cognitive scientist. So I study human thought and behavior, and primarily I've looked at how people think about God and the what you might think of as the natural foundations of religion. So that's been my primary area of work. But for years, this evolutionary psychology sort of subfield has been kind of encroaching on the work that that I and others do on what we call cognitive science of religion. And so at a certain point, I realized that it would be helpful if, especially those of us who identify as evangelical Christians like I do, sort of had a a bit of an introduction to what is evolutionary psychology. There are a lot of pretty bold claims about it, what what it can deliver. Some of those seem to think that it can deliver a whole worldview and a a way to think about Mm -hmm. human flourishing. And I always found that was a a bit grandiose, uh, (laughs) a bit of an excess. So I, I tried to encourage some of my colleagues who know more about evolutionary theory to write this book, and uh, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> so, so finally, I gave up hope that I could find somebody else to do it and uh, decided maybe I ought to do it. My colleague Pam King agreed to write this with me. And it, in some ways, it fits with what we're trying to do at Blueprint 1543, where we're trying to get the sciences and Christian theology to kind of go together to address life's big questions. And mm-hmm. what bigger question is there than human flourishing, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where the book came from. Yeah, g- great. What about the title, Thriving with Stone Age Minds? Could you kind of allude to what behind the title there? Sure, yeah. So thriving is the word we use for human flourishing, basically. It's just a synonym, though the concept of thriving we try to work out is 
both an individual and a community-based thing. The idea being that as individuals thrive, their communities thrive and vice versa, that there Mm -hmm. should be some kind of reciprocity there. So that's the thriving with Stone Age Mines. A lot of people writing from an evolutionary perspective uh, when it comes to human beings have pointed out that if, if humans really did evolve, or the way I like to talk about it is if God used an evolutionary process to bring us about over, you know, uh, say, and, and our species has been around for a couple of hundred thousand years, that means that most of the time there have been humans, we have lived in very different kinds of environments. And we probably had very different kinds of psychological equipment for handling those very different kinds of environments. So you might think most of our history and most of our equipment is sort of designed and tuned up for Stone Age environments, you know, environments in which stone tools are the primary tools that we had. And while I know that can sound shocking to a lot of us, uh, especially in sort of Western urban settings, but if you think, you know, when... um, just a little over 200 years ago when uh, Europeans are starting to arrive in Hawaii, for instance, uh, there was a Stone Age culture there, or at least sort of on the margins of Stone Age culture. And much of the world was actually Stone Aged only a couple of hundred thousand years ago. I'm sorry, a couple of hundred years ago. And, you know, 200 years isn't enough time for us to through evolutionary processes to come up with an entirely new nature and a new psychology and new tools of how to think and interact with the world. So it's in an important sense, you can think, wow, we are living in this contemporary world, but we've got the equipment that's roughly the same equipment that's been with us for maybe 100, 200,000 years. Mm -hmm. And once we have that in mind, it casts new light on how our nature fits within our contemporary environments or maybe misfits with our contemporary environments. Yeah. So let's address the dinosaur in the room. Um, Since we're talking about evolution, I can't say elephant in the room. And that is, we're not only five minutes in, and we we probably should talk about a little bit, is that there are a lot of Christians out there, and I'm sure there's many of our listeners or maybe some of our listeners who are a little uneasy with the idea of evolution or macroevolution, as young earth creationists often will say, could you address that a little bit? And why should someone continue listening to our conversation if they're just like, oh, evolution's, you know, you know, I don't believe any of that or whatever. Like what, what sort of insights might they still gain from continuing this conversation or even maybe reading your book? Yeah, I appreciate that not everyone is comfortable with evolution, let alone evolutionary psychology. Uh, there are some elements of it that I'm not entirely comfortable with. And uh, the parts I am comfortable with, I came to pretty pretty late in in my Mm -hmm. development, for sure. So I'm sympathetic to that. What I ask readers to do in the book is just to play a what if with me. And the what if is, well, what if this is the mechanism by which God brought about people? Could God have used evolution to make some sort of uh, special animal in his image? Uh, I don't see any reason why not, uh, theologically, that that isn't possible. And given that there are these interesting pointers scientifically to that uh, possibility, then I think for us to be uh, intelligent, engaged, sort of educated Christians, we ought to at least know how to talk about that perspective Mm -hmm. and how to wrestle with it in a constructive way with Christian theology. So what I'm inviting readers to do in the book is, even if you're uncomfortable with it, that's okay, I respect that. But let's 
say, what if this is the way that God brought us about? Well, then what might we learn from that perspective about human flourishing? Mm -hmm. I'm very clear in the book. I don't think that evolutionary psychology can take the place of Christian theology at all. It runs into limitations very quickly because like any science, it's built on certain assumptions about uh, the world, about how we come about knowing things. And it's not very good at telling us what we ought to do, <laughs> including how we ought to flourish and thrive. What it's pretty good at doing, though, I think, is giving us insights into, well, how does human psychology work? How does that have implications for the kind of world we live in? Mm. What are the consequences of trying to, I don't know, uh, put our our thoughts and learning mechanisms and social structures into different environments and directing them towards certain ends that we might call flourishing, ends that are derived from our Christian theology. So I'm inviting readers to sort of join me in this what if and see, does it give some interesting insights that we wouldn't have otherwise? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you decide for yourself whether you're comfortable with evolutionary psychology or not. But let's give it a hearing, try it on for size, and if you don't like it, then you know, leave it on the clothing rack. Yeah, sure. Well, I have appreciated the degree to which I can, and I listened to your audiobook. Is that's how I consumed your book in this particular case? Sometimes it's an audiobook. Sometimes I, you know, read a normal physical or Kindle book. As I'm listening to the book, I'm getting insights into human behavior that don't always get explained through scripture. I'm struggling to come up with an example in particular, but as we go on, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to some of those. There's a lot of times where we look at scripture, and again, scripture is adequate for all things, you know, for faith and life, but it's not going to explain how to bake a cake. It's not going to explain every little thing that we absolutely need to know to survive and live in life. And so when you look at what the Bible says about human nature and human behavior, it does not go as deep as what I'm listening to from your book, which is sort of allowing evolutionary psychology to augment a little bit of like, well, here's how these two fit in. And here is how, you know, evolutionary psychology can tell us why or how we behave the way we behave. And that doesn't seem contradictory to me at all with the idea that scripture is authoritative, comes from God, and is saying these things about human nature. And they actually complement each other really well. And so for me, the the experience of listening and learning from you in this book has been a sort of deepening of my understanding of the way humans are. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's really encouraging because that's certainly what I was aiming to do. Oh, we're I, good. Don't, <laughs> I don't think there's anything in the book that upsets traditional Orthodox Christianity at all or the authority of Scripture for that matter. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's clear that you have a high view of authority of Scripture and you also take very seriously the tension that's there, as we've already discussed. I want to take a small pause here for just a second to say that your publisher has actually kindly agreed to give out three copies of this book. So I know that there are probably three listeners out there who are chomping at the bit to buy this book. If you haven't ordered it already on Amazon, or I guess by now, if you're still listening, you probably can cancel your Amazon order. You can actually email me and I will have them send you a book. So it's first three emails that I receive, Thriving with Stone Age Minds. I do want you to finish listening to the episode. I mean, you can email me, pause, finish the episode, whatever. But listeners, that's a special deal that the publisher has uh, given to us. So yeah, back to the actual conversation here, Justin. What would you 
you know, someone hears the word evolutionary psychology and people think, oh, wait, evolution, isn't that like how we biologically evolved from earlier, you know, our ancestors? What does psychology have to do with that? And so people might wonder, well, what is evolutionary psychology? So before we go any further, we probably want to kind of narrow it down or get a sort of definitive answer there from you. Sure, yeah. So psychology, at least the scientific side of psychology, we often define as the scientific study of human thought and behavior. That's what psychology is, the uh, scientific study of human thought and behavior. So then you can think of evolutionary psychology as the scientific study of human thought and behavior from the perspective that we have evolved over a long period of time, presumably from some kind of ancestral species. You know, farther back you go, the more different it is from us today in some manner, some gradual manner, but that the, you might think the fingerprints or the residue of our past is still with us in some respects. That's what's kind of interesting about the evolutionary perspective is that our psychology, how we think and behave is colored by or informed by the kinds of survival and fitness challenges that our ancestors faced in the, in the past. So, you know, ancestors who were really good at, at meeting these survival challenges, their genes were more likely to get passed on. And so whatever psychological tools they had for dealing with those problems that they faced uh, would have been passed on more than those who didn't have such good tools for facing those problems. And so then you can look at contemporary human thought and behavior and say, well, you know, we've got these funny little features of it that maybe are more readily explained from this evolutionary perspective. And so one of the little textbook examples of this is, you know, why do we love donuts so much? <laughs> Things like this. Why are we so drawn to, you know, these nice fatty and sugary foods? Cheesecake is another example that's used a lot. When, you know, Am I detecting that you have a sweet tooth, Justin? Well, uh, maybe a little bit, you know. I mean, I think we all do, uh, you know, unless we really work ourselves out of it. And that's the point is we have this natural tendency toward this stuff. And, you know, how does the story go? The story goes something like this. Well, in our ancestral conditions, we wouldn't have had so much ready access to fats and sugars. Where would we have gotten those? Well, fats would have come primarily from animals. And animal fat, that's hard to come by, but it's really, you know, it's, it's a lot of energy in fat, right? So that's if, but it would take a lot of work to get to it and to prepare it in a way that's safe for consumption and doesn't make you sick and so forth. So there's got to be a lot of payoff for that investment. Payoff in terms of it feels good eating that stuff. And likewise with sugars, you know, you're going to get that in things like berries that are very seasonal, transitory, they spoil quickly, you know, they might scratch you up, but they've got a lot of vitamins as well. So you, we want to be drawn to some of these things that were good for us under those conditions under which they were rare. They're not rare anymore, <laughs> mm. but we still find ourselves drawn to them and attracted to them. And that can get us into trouble now with, you know, all kinds of, you know, obesity and diabetes, heart disease, those kinds of things. But that's a product of a mismatch, if you will, between our psychological drives towards certain types of foods and the contemporary environment now that we find ourselves in where we don't need to be quite so driven toward these things. <laughs> But we still are because of this sort of Stone Age mind still hanging around. Now, that's just a story. But for 
those who are doing real science in this area, they'll take a story like that and let that inspire more specific experimental, cross-cultural, and other kinds of systematic scientific research to find out, well, does that check out? Uh, does that really fit the evidence? Does that kind of an account give us better and stronger predictions than we might expect otherwise? And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And that's how we learn things. How does the human species differ from other species psychologically? Yeah, we... Um, that's not a real simple answer, obviously. There's, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah, it's not a real simple. <laughs> but let me, let me uh, give you my best shot at a quick kind of response. Humans, I think most importantly, are distinguished by uh, physically one of the things that you notice about humans right away, especially if we're comparing ourselves to uh, other primates, is we've got these massive foreheads, (laughs) big big old huge foreheads. The uh, amount of brain in front of our ears is actually massive compared to these other other primates. They have flatter heads, you know, and if you don't even have to look at primates, look at dogs or cats and stuff, they all have flat heads. We've got these big old foreheads, which contains this great big mass of what's called the prefrontal cortex. And that prefrontal cortex seems to be particularly important brain matter for doing a number of important things. It facilitates our kind of sociality it facilitates our learning from each other and acquiring lots of expertise. And it facilitates our self-control. We sometimes say our executive function, our decision-making, our restraining ourselves from being impulsive and so forth. And those three big chunks of activities, our sociality, our ability to acquire expertise, and our ability to control ourselves deliberately, seem to me as the big clusters of traits that really set us apart from other species. And we develop in the book each of those three categories quite a bit and show how they feed off of each other, but also then how they resonate with different views from biblical views on what makes a human interesting and what seems to put us in a position to be God's representatives on this earth. So I have a dog that I have trained to be somewhat self-controlling when it comes to there's meat in front of him or nearby. And I would say that my dog has, we could say in some sense that he has exercised self-control, but that seems to be fundamentally different from how I decide that I'm not going to eat a donut this morning. How do those differ for something like what appears to be self-control. I mean, clearly the dog has been domesticated, which is, I think, another item that you spelled out a little bit. It's like we've been able to domesticate other species where that hasn't been the case with others from other species. How does the self-control for the human differ from that of other animals? Yeah, I think you've already hinted at it a little bit. Um, with animals like dogs, you're quite right. I mean, you know, a really well-trained dog, you can even balance a piece of bacon on its nose for at least a little while. And not my dog, not my It'll dog. drool forever, you know, <laughs> start making a mess and eventually you have to relent. But it's doing it to please you. It's doing it because it knows it, it will get that reward. You've trained it up. A dog on its own is not going to exercise that kind of restraint. Yes, I also noticed that too. When he's on his own in another room, he doesn't exercise (laughs) self-control. Yeah, but we humans can do that. And we can even control ourselves absent other people watching us. Uh, We can do it absent any immediate kinds of reward. 
we can do these interesting things like uh, evaluate different uh, possible pathways ahead for our actions and and select among them, right? Um, so when I talk about self-control, I'm meaning all of those things, right? Mm. Uh, uh, we can do things like, oh, I'm really angry right now, but I'm not going to lash out. I'm going to take a deep breath and just, just you know, <laughs> mm. not act as I want to act. We don't only have the option of, you know, fighting and fleeing and freezing like other animals. We can go, ooh, I think I'm going to negotiate. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm going right, to discuss yeah. this. I'm going to seek more information. You even understand that you don't only have <laughs> fight or flight. <laughs> well, exactly, right. I have access to my own mental states. We sometimes call it meta-representation. And that's part of our super sociality too, is that we can think about our own thoughts and we can think about others' thoughts and we can think about others' thoughts about our thoughts and others' thoughts about my thoughts and your thoughts. <laughs> that was probably my favorite word in the book, meta-representation. <laughs> just, just the idea that I have a sense now of how you feel this podcast is going, right? Like there is a, like I can, that's, that's really cool. That, that we can do that. And it's really important too. So, I mean, for a little kid to learn effectively from their parents, they need to know that mom and I are paying attention to the same thing when mom says something about it. So I check mom's eye gaze and mom looks at my eyes and we basically read each other's minds. Okay, we're both paying attention to the same thing. And now mom, you can teach me about this thing. And that's a, a really important ability that then gets ratcheted up into this meta-representation mm. that enables us to share information with each other, to learn from each other, uh, to track social relationships in important ways, and even to self-control. So those are some pretty cool tricks that it looks like, at least by degree, but in some cases, even by kind, humans are the only animals we know that can do these things. So let's talk about the nature and niche depending on how people pronounce that word, you use that word to talk about environment. And I th it's probably a better word than the word environment because our minds go to something a little different in our brains there. We think, you know, the environment, you know, in sort of a, you know, environmentalist sort of way. So this, this niche that humans come into or create, it's not just there for us to be. We affect it. And yet we also then are somewhat unable to deal with how we've affected it. I'd want you to go into that a little bit because that was really fascinating to me to think about how we each have our, and another word might be domain, you know, I'm kind of using synonyms here to help my mind get a wrap around a little bit, is that we create for ourselves these areas by which we then have to adapt to or that others, you know, who are along with us have to adapt to. Right, right. This idea of niche is, you're right, is not quite the same as environment, but it's very closely related. It's kind of the... You can almost think of it as the functional environment. It's the our interface with the environment, uh, the environmental uh, demands on us that we have to navigate in order to, from an evolutionary perspective, promote our own fitness, right? To survive, reproduce, raise children, whatever, you know, fitness means for our species. That's the niche. And every organism has a niche. And... All organisms impact their niche in some ways. So 
pine trees, uh, the baby pine tree has to grow up in the shadow of its parent pine tree in the needle bed that has changed the pH of the soil and so forth. So the parent pine tree being there actually changes the niche of the baby, and that's called niche construction. One of the impressive things about humans is that we seem to be sort of just massive niche constructors. We have spread all over the world as a species into all of these different kinds of environments by virtue of being able to not change our genetics because we're actually remarkably uniform in terms of our genes everywhere we go. We aren't lots of species of humans all over the world. Instead, we've niche constructed. We sort of impose our will on the environment in a sense or create gadgets and tools that help us navigate that environment. So clothing is part of niche construction. You know, our kids don't have to be naked because they get clothes. (laughs) To take a sort of a silly example, but that's part of the environment that then babies grow up in. It's a clothed environment and that matters. You know, so you're less likely to freeze. Houses are part of the niche then. Dense social community groups are part of the niche. So you're right, environments usually makes people think, oh, just, you know, the rocks and rivers and mountains and trees. And But niche means all of the stuff that's out there that impinges upon our, in this case, our flourishing that we have to navigate. So one of the things we talk about in the book quite a bit is how it is that humans sort of aggressively niche construct. We change our niches in order to survive and reproduce and so forth. But then that means that our offspring, because we change it so dramatically, our offspring are faced with new challenges that we've created. And so there's this, you might think of it as a gap between our nature, our sort of naturally endowed psychological propensities, and the niche that we're faced with. And with each generation, as we attempt to bridge that gap between our nature and our niche, we make the gap wider sometimes sometimes in very unexpected sorts of ways. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, you'll like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Norman, Doug, Aaron, and others analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. You mentioned fitness a little bit earlier, which in a way is one thing that sets humans apart from other species was part of that, you know, previous discussion there because the word fitness actually means something substantially different for us. It has more meaning. We could talk about the idea of survival of the fittest for any particular species, but for us, fitness is more than just survivability. For humans, there is a deeper meaning to what it means to be fit as a human And that sort of leads into the discussion again uh, about, you know, being made in the image of God. And I like how the word fitness, you've used the words in the book that really capture the essence and are very particular with how you construct the argument or the explanation for what you're talking about. And so these words like meta-representation, we didn't talk about mind reading yet, but fitness, niche, I'm very much in favor of making sure that these words have meaning that that carries what you needed to communicate. And so that's where I thought fitness was really, really good. Because we use the word fitness for other reasons too. And 
I think the idea of fitness, and correct me if I didn't catch what you were saying right, but the idea of fitness really does go in a direction of what human flourishing and thriving would actually mean for humans. Like there is actually a definition of thriving and fitness and human flourishing that's a little bit different from just a fit hamster. <laughs> so the the word fitness, uh, you know, this is this is biological jargon that's meant to, from an evolutionary perspective, meant to apply to all species. You know, and uh, your fitness is the degree to which an organism manages to successfully reproduce essentially. And that's part of why evolutionary psychology sometimes gets this maybe a rightly earned reputation as being all about sex because, you know, reproduction matters. Okay. If you survive, but you don't reproduce, you don't have high fitness. But in some species, including humans, we invest a whole lot in our offspring. And so to be fit is not just to have babies because we don't have many babies. We're not like rabbits who just make lots and lots and lots or sea turtles who lay an egg and then they ditch the kid and it's on its own. We invest a whole lot in our offspring. And in fact, we're very unusual in that we invest in other people's offspring and in our grandchildren as well. So one of the kind of cool features of being human is that we live an awful long time and especially human women live an awful long time past being fertile. And uh, it's thought that maybe that's so that they can invest in their grandchildren. And uh, so fitness for a human is not just, I made babies or I stayed alive. It's I've invested in my kids and in a real sense, in my community, my clan and so forth. And so we sometimes in evolutionary theory use the term inclusive fitness to mean that broader sense of fitness. One of the ideas, though, we try to develop in the book is that that seems to capture some but not all of what flourishing is, right? It's interesting that even from an evolutionary perspective, that notion of fitness in humans has this deeply social generative, reciprocal kind of character to it. We're actually investing in others in a deeply personal kind of way. And that starts sounding an awful lot like love. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, an angle that you could take on an evolutionary approach to human flourishing is that we're the animal that loves. Mm. Not just As, as opposed to just, yeah, okay. I was just, you, you, I read your mind, you read my mind there. It's like, as opposed to just simply caretaking, right? Yeah, not just caretaking, but we actually seem to have the capacities to do things like, I'm going to put your interests ahead of mine. I'm going to think about what would be good for you, not what would be good for me, or a step further, not just what would be good for me in your situation, but what would be good for you no matter if you want it or not. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I want to be united with you insofar as it's good for you, but not if it isn't. Ooh, that's a tough one, right? So your dog who loves you very much. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure if it loves you or mm. it's just devoted to you. <laughs> devoted, yeah. It's devoted to you, but your dog could kill you because of its devotion. Okay, so you can imagine funny scenarios in which the dog uh, thinks, I don't know, uh, thinks it's bringing you something that you want because this is a game you play and it brings you a hand grenade or something, mm. you know, and kills you or <laughs> something like that. Sorry, we went Or it's too fast. playful with a very young child. Or yes, there you go. Yeah, um, just excited so what, and, you know, whatever. 
That's right. And no, 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 don't come to me, dog. Don't, no, don't, uh, now we're all dead. Okay. Um, whereas a human can say, you know, it is not good for me to be with my kid right now who has become so dependent upon me that maybe that's a young adult child who is not striking out on their own effectively. And me holding them too closely actually is bad for them, even though that's exactly what I want is to hold them closely. And so I'm going to give them space in order so that they can thrive and flourish. That's something we humans can do because of this immense sociality, but also our, our self-control. And that's an interesting bundle of traits we don't see in other animals. But it sounds a whole lot like the kind of love that the Bible says we're called to exercise with each other. And that's, I mean, you can hear my excitement. This is it was kind of a fun discovery the more I dug into an evolutionary perspective on human psychology that I thought, well, actually, there's some deep resonance here mm. with a biblical view on the kind of rich life that Jesus calls us to live. Well, that, that's probably a really good segue into a little bit more discussion on human flourishing. There's a number of ways in which you talk about it. I would say the last third of the book more specifically gets into this and what thriving looks like. And there's a discussion on purpose. There's a discussion on uh, another one of my favorite theological words, telos, which is, I think, really fitting, pardon the pun there, that those are parts of the discussion as to what is our human nature and where have we, what have we come from? What, what or how are we thinking? What is the difference between us and other species? And there's a grappling with, for a lot of people, Christian or not, with who are we or who am I? And both of those questions, right? Like, who am I as an individual? Who, am, who are we as a species? I don't think we sort of self-contemplate that too much. But how we fit into the wider world and how we flourish with other humans. So let me ask you, how do you discuss human flourishing when the discussion is around individuals and communities? I approach this idea of human flourishing from what you might think of as sort of a, a reciprocal or reciprocating kind of perspective. And that's actually a term I borrowed from my, my collaborator, Pam King. She's written a book called The Reciprocating Self. And um, she observes, I think rightly, that because we are so deeply social as, as a creature, that our flourishing is not, it, it can't be exercised completely independently of others, right? So I cannot flourish if my family isn't flourishing or thriving. We use the term thriving. And the flourishing or thriving of my family is facilitated by the, the thriving of my community. And so these different layers of social organization all feed off of each other. Right. And it goes the other way. It's not just that my community exists to help me thrive, but my thriving is actually, well, it's made possible. It's, it's actualized as I'm contributing to the thriving of others. So it's kind of, uh, it's a both and situation on the individual and these uh, rings of, of relationships that we're in. So it's not wholly individualistic, but it's not wiping out the individual either. And we want to hold those, those two truths in tension. I've sometimes put it this way that, right, even just speaking from a, a theological perspective, we say that our, our relationship with Jesus is personal, yes, but it's also corporate, right? Um, it's not individualistic. 
but it is personal. So mm-hmm. our thriving has this character of the who am I and how do I conform to the likeness of Christ? Living into that imaging is part of my thriving. But that can't be the at the expense of those around me. Because that's part of what it means to image Christ is that you're caring for those around you, not sacrificing or climbing over them. Right. Yeah. And you can't thrive unless you're doing those anyway. That's right. Like, it's not like you can thrive and be like, okay, I won't simply not harm people, but I, you know, you have to actively, to truly thrive, you actually have to be active in the loving of others. I think that's right. But I'll confess to you, this is, you know, some people just seem to disagree with this. Uh, When I was giving drafts of the the book to other, you know, folks to read, some of the feedback I got was, well, wait a minute, what about like the desert fathers uh, in the Christian tradition of these sort of monastics who'd go out in the desert by themselves and stuff? Are you telling me that they weren't thriving? And I'd say, well, look, you know, it's not my position to judge whether they were or not. But yeah, I have my doubts. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, that sure doesn't look like the at least the typical life we were called to. I'm totally open to the idea that some people are going to break the mold mm-hmm. in some important ways. But I think on average, we would be surprised if the secret to success in this life is that we all live by ourselves in our own little caves in the desert. <laughs> it just strikes me as probably not the the way forward. Right. I, I the other thing that comes up for me when thinking about theological application of scripture and even with evolutionary psychology is it's not been within a hundred years that we've had not only mass proliferation of our species, but also connectivity. And so to some extent, it's like you have this monastic group. I mean, I don't know how big they are, but you might have this monastic group go out and live on their own, but like, well, how's that any different from what we've been doing for thousands of years anyway, right? Like, there is room for the nomad in Christian theology, so to speak, but there's also, we haven't really grappled with a world where there's 6 billion people and we're all interconnected. It's not just that we all exist and we you know, have to travel or whatever, but like we're all interconnected. So there's like a challenge here. And I think that speaks to that gap that has happened as well. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, one of the things that really concerns me about how quickly we are changing as a species is the the problem of urbanization as well as the sort of connectivity that's Mm -hmm. created through uh, you know electronic communication media and so forth these massive numbers of people all living in close proximity and the density of social networks is not something that our minds seem to be naturally prepared for and uh I think as a result, we are seeing uh, a diminishing of the quality of our relationships. We're trading quantity for quality. Uh, We're seeing stress and anxiety around relationships. Instead of those being a source of of comfort and support, they're becoming stressors to us. Hmm. Um, We're seeing the treating people as anonymous others. I mean, think, uh, you know, two, even 200 years ago, the majority of people on a daily basis, if the people that they'd be interacting with would be people that they know, right? uh, almost 100% of the people they'd be interacting with daily would be at least somewhat familiar to them. And today it's easy for an urbanite to go through an entire day and not run into anybody that they're even familiar with. So it's just the opposite. 
um, that's a very peculiar situation to be in. And so it doesn't surprise me from this perspective that in cities, we're seeing high degrees of anxiety and anxiety-related psychological disorders, that people have sleep disorders, uh, as well as from the technological types of things, that violent crime is very high in urban environments. Yeah, we've, we've packed people in on top of each other in ways that sort of um, short circuits the way that uh, we naturally deal with other people. Mm. And I think there's something to be very concerned about here. I've heard other folks who have more expertise on the sociological level of cities say things like, yeah, cities are, you know, they, that's where country folk go to die. Because uh, <laughs> it's kind of dark, but cities don't replace themselves. Uh, they, they manage to sustain themselves and grow because people keep moving into them. But actually, mortality rates are such that and replacement rates through fertility and so forth are such that if not for this influx of people going in, the cities disappear. Hmm. Oh, which is kind of an interesting uh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know feature that. of cities. No. Yeah, uh, maybe not uh, universally, but that's as a general rule, yeah. that seems to be the case. Cities are not good things for us because they seem to, okay, you're seeing that I'm, I'm starting to drift off of my, my primary expertise into areas of no, speculation, but it's kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> these are the things that worry me because our natural social capacity seems to be built for much smaller scaled, more intimate, interpersonal kinds of environments that therefore don't require the same degree of institutionalized policing, Mm -hmm. governmental structures and so forth, because we socially police each other and ourselves when we know each other. When even if I don't know you, I have a good reason to believe you know people who know me, well, that's automatically helps me regulate uh, my behavior, helps me give you, you know, treat you a little bit better and so forth. Yeah. But when I have no reason to think that you know anybody who knows me, that I'm completely anonymous to you, well, now I need power structures and policing to sort of uh, help us get along because mm. I, I lose some of the sort of natural impetus to just yeah. be nice. Yeah, a mom and pop society is a little better than a corporate society, right? Sure. Well, in, that's, in, in, in a way, that's that's my like you know pop level version of what you just kind of said. It's like, well, if we know each other, it's just easier. I shouldn't say it's easier. It's an environment in which we were were more familiar. Yeah, there there are always trade offs, right? There are always yeah. trade offs, but that uh, mom and pop society, as you put it, is it's more of our native social language. We don't have mm, to do mm-hmm. so much learning and scaffolding to to get used to that. It sort of it suits our nature a little more comfortably. Yeah, it certainly suits my nature. I'm a little bit more of a country person than I am a city person, although I appreciate cities. I a few years ago read Ed Glazer's The Triumph of the City, and I had a much deeper appreciation for the marvel of, you know, metropolis if you will, um, and larger cities and how they grow and what they're capable of doing and, and things like that. So, you know, your thoughts there, it's like that we're not, what was the phrase you just used? We're not socially, or it's not our native social language. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a warning to be, <laughs> or not a warning, but that's definitely something to be heeded. So tell me what is on the horizon for you. Where can our listeners find you online? You can uh, tell us about Blueprint 1543 and anything else you're up to. Sure. 
Well, thanks. Uh, Blueprint 1543 is a little organization that exists to try to bring the sciences together with Christian theology to answer life's big questions. And we do that through lots of different kinds of things, uh, coaching, consulting, convening, um, catalyzing new research areas, lots of different things. You can check out our website at www.blueprint1543.org. And we do have some resources there, though we're not a primarily a resourcing kind of outfit. We do have some materials there, including what we're calling the Theopsych Academy. This is a set of resources that were designed to introduce theologians to the psychological sciences in ways that would be useful for their work, their theological inquiry. Uh, very soon, we'll have another book there that I've put together, an introduction to psychological science for theologians, which uh, hopefully in maybe January, that'll be available in uh, an electronic format there. All of this stuff is free. We're just trying to get lots of people moving in the same direction and seeing that there's real utility in the sciences for uh, making progress on big theological questions and uh, ultimately in service of the church and the world. Well, Justin, I appreciate you coming on and talk about human flourishing and thriving and uh, wish you best. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.